If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From debates about colonialism to the lessons of previous pandemics, history has repeatedly made the headlines this year. And at the end of October, we assembled a panel of experts, Kerry Greenwich, Tom Holland, Susanna Lipscomb and Michael Wood, to discuss how the past has shaped 2020 and how the events of this momentous year should change our understanding of the past. Chairing the debate was our deputy editor, Matt Elton. My name is Kerry Greenwich. I'm an assistant professor at Tufts University in uh, Massachusetts in the United States. My most recent work is Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter, published by um, Liverwright Norton in 2019. I am Susanna Lipscomb. I'm professor of history at the University of Roehampton. I write about the 16th century, um, England and France, and um, from time to time uh, make television programs as well. Uh, I'm Michael Wood. I'm a filmmaker and broadcaster. Uh, I'm Professor of Public History at the University of Manchester, and I've just published The Story of China. My name's Tom Holland. Uh, My most recent book, uh, Dominion, is uh, a history of the um, impact that Christianity has had on the world. Uh, I've just finished a translation for Penguin Classics of Suetonius's Lives of the Caesars, and I am currently writing a history of ancient Greece for children in which the gods are real. So the question to start with really is, as historians looking at the news this year, which things have stood out for you? The Chinese always say, may you live in interesting times. And, and it's been an amazing year if you're interested in history, hasn't it? Um, I mean, I guess I would say if I can lob in three ideas and see what my colleagues all think about them. First of all, I know I I say this on a regular basis in in the magazine, but the biggest history story is climate and uh, climate change. We should stop using the word change. It's rapidly becoming a a catastrophe and uh, and it affects everything. Uh, And no no event is more serious. So I say we we should always remember that. Um, But it's been masked this year by other utterly incredible stories, of which, um, first of all, is the pandemic. And I think we might all want to talk about that in detail later. But I would would highlight two things about it. One is the transparent failure of uh, the uh, liberal 
democratic systems, which uh, uh, kind of arose in the late 18th century, developed in the 19th, and are clearly not fit for purpose, and and have been shown up, their fissures have been shown up by the pandemic, and especially in the light of how effectively autocracies like China have, have handled them. And I can talk more about that later. And the third thing I would say is Black Lives Matter. It seems to me that that has really, really important repercussions um, uh, because it's it's uh, not only vitally important itself, but it's part of a revolt, it seems to me, um, a much bigger revolt against the, the political and intellectual establishment, which was also um, encoded back in the late 18th, early 19th centuries by a male elite and um, uh, formed with creating a view of history to underwrite it. And it feels like a seismic shift, which isn't going to go away. So uh, that's those are the things that really bothered me this year. Anyone else like to add anything to that? Well, I, I clearly, environmental degradation remains the huge story. Um, and, and, and I would supplement the, Mike, Mike's focus on um, climate change with... Um, the ongoing process of mass extinction and the encroachment of uh, humans onto um, reaches of the world that that previously had 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 not been inhabited by humans, I think that um, that is something that that we as a species became incredibly aware of during uh, the experience of lockdown. That was some people suddenly became aware of. Um, the natural world around them in a way perhaps that they hadn't done for a fair while. Uh, and of course, the um, there's a sense in which this encroachment of humanity on spaces, or, or, on spaces that previously had been uh, immune to our encroachment is a part of what has led to um, the pandemic because um, the, onso- the onset of zoonotic um, uh, viruses and pandemics is clearly part of a, a trend and why we can expect more of these to happen. So I think that that is, that is the huge, massive story. I think the other story, and I was, just, <laughs> I was waiting for Mike to bring it up, is the, 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 the rise of China, the ongoing rise of China, but also more generally um, the, uh, the, 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 the rise of a multipolar world. And I think that that what um, this uh, pandemic has brought home to us is um, the way in which actually um, as Western economic power, military power, political power retreats, so also our cultural power retreats. And I, I actually have a, a rather different perspective on Black Lives Matter, which is how very specific to the West, and I would say actually how very specific to Anglo-America it is. What strikes me is that it's had absolutely no cut through really um, in uh, in the rest of Europe. And really, I mean, it, it, it makes no sense at all to uh, parts of the other, uh, the, the rest of the world. And I think that um, the, uh, the assumption the West has been able to enjoy for at least two centuries now, that culturally, it matters that that culturally what it thinks what it argues its values its problems its issues have an impact on the rest of the world i think that uh, that, that this year has demonstrated that that is no longer the case Kerry, i wondered if you'd like to chip in with anything that stood out for you 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking about this as I'm as I'm listening to both Tom and 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 Michael and and hopefully Susanna as well. I think one of the uh, things in terms of this past year is this notion that um, certain movements for particularly uh, against racial capitalism, such as uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, are somehow localized. And this need at this moment in in uh, world history to recognize that those calls are not localized, that they are global, um, and that even though they are being led by um, um, groups of people, specifically um, African-descended people and African-American people in the movement for Black lives in the United States, that that has global reper- re- repercussions. There's a reason why um, banners for Black Lives Matter were being waved in um, parts of uh, uh, Asia, uh, parts of the Pacific, uh, parts of Africa, parts of Eastern Europe, uh, parts of um, of uh, Africa and the Caribbean um, at the beginning of the summer. I think that uh, we're in the midst of a, a, a pandemic, so it's it's um, and unfortunately, you know, the, the the press and all this power has has kind of moved on to other things. But I think that to to have this assumption that somehow. Um, localized protests are somehow local and not global. Um, we are in a moment where where everything is global, particularly if we're going to look at those movements in the context of climate change and the damage that's happening to the climate. I think if there's anything we've all learned over the past year is that um, protests, um, the wealth of the planet cannot be just viewed from either West or East or a local view of looking at it, because if one country goes down and doesn't participate, um, then, you know, that, that's going to have a global effect on the entire world. So I, I, one of the things in terms of answering your first question, which was about history and how uh, history in the past year, I think that um, the, the world in general is sort of in this moment of crises. Um, I think the power of dealing with these crises in this moment um, that might emerge and hopefully will emerge is this notion that every action that's being taken locally is having a global and uh, e- economic, political, cultural impact. That we can't kind of take this view that um, um, sort of a provincial view of well, this is there's a protest against police brutality, say in um, um, Nigeria, and somehow that has no connection to what's happening across the rest of the uh, the world. Thank you, Susanna. Well, these are all brilliant ideas, and I don't want to reiterate anything, um, but just sort of, I suppose there are a few other kind of themes that come up. I suppose from the pandemic, I think we need to think about um, impoverishment um, across the world as a whole, um, but also in our own countries um, that very many people are going to be severely, are being severely impoverished by the experience of the pandemic. Um, and um, I don't think we've seen the full consequences of that yet, the unfurling of that. Um, uh, so I think that, the, you know, the pandemic isn't really just about how many people it kills. It's going to have, many people are going to die as a res- or be, um, to have their lives um, most unpleasantly affected, but in very mild terms, as a result of the consequences of this. And we've been very short-termist in now thinking about what the impacts of this are going to be. Um, and that also, uh, in the context of thinking about whether people can afford to eat or not, this might sound rather uh, provincial, but I also think it's going to have an important um, effect on the arts, and I'm concerned about the effect it's going to have on the arts in terms of the treatment of heritage, uh, music, theatre. Those are things that I don't think are going to easily 
uh, recover. And I think that the arts matter. I think they matter a lot to um, our sense of self, our, our well-being, our creative imaginations, our collective shared um, imaginations. And so uh, the fact that this this really serious thing happening to um, to, to music, particularly things you know classical music to, to theatre, and that has actually linked with heritage in um, a sort of it's a Black Lives Matter movement and the pandemic have linked um, in terms of responses to them in the UK at least in terms of thinking about are we coming to a point of reckoning with our uh, colonial past? Are we coming to a point of reckoning with thinking about slavery and its legacy um, and people who, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, say, how the National Trust proceeds. There's been, on the other hand, those who thinking about the nature of history. There's been a lot of discussion this year about the nature of history, whether you can erase history, whether uh, pulling down a, uh, a statue is erasing an object. And on the one hand, you have those who say we should not be held hostage to these national myths, um, and others, including our uh, Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who said you know we should avoid all this cringing embarrassment about our history. Um, and the way these two things meet is that you have um, uh, this impact on heritage sites, on institutions like um, uh, the National Portrait Gallery or the British Museum or the National Trust Historic Royal Palaces, the number of jobs that have to be cut. And so they're fighting to survive. And at the same time, they're receiving letters from the Secretary of State for Culture telling them what they can and cannot do. <laughs> which is extraordinary that they're say, being told, um, no, the government does not support the removal of statues and we expect your approach to the issue of contested heritage to be in line with the government's position. So there's an encroachment there on curatorial decisions. And yet, as Michael said at the beginning, um, it seems that it's it's a strange area to be exerting control when control hasn't been well exerted when it comes to dealing with the pandemic. So we have this these this we live in this strange time in terms of ambiguities about how power is handled, contradictions about what you can what you can control and you can't. Um, and I think in many ways this year is unfortunately going to be seen as a year in which many things fell apart. And I one hopes that they can be picked up and made better, but it's not entirely clear yet how that's going to happen. How useful is it to draw historical parallels with something like the pandemic? Especially when the pandemic started, a lot of comparisons made to the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918. Um, and I wondered how useful it is to actually, uh, in the current news cycle, draw such explicit and repeated parallels or something like that. I think that one of the things that I think people um, look at when they hear making parallel hist historical parallels between the present and the past is that this is exactly the same, or that somehow this is something that uh, what's happened in the past is telling us what's going to happen in the future. And I would argue, actually, that history re requires more than that simple um, way of looking at its role in the present. I think that history tells us um, what 
currents are. It tells us a lot about um, how systems work. It tells us a lot about how the myriad ways that we know human beings and all their fallibility and all their complexities react to a situation. Um, so I think if we look at, at that, I think we get away from saying, oh, this is exactly like the pandemic, flu pandemic, and then become the argument then becomes, well, this is how it isn't, right? Or this is how it is. Um, whereas I think the argument should be, um, what has been the historical um, decisions, um, actions, um, thoughts, ideologies that have led us to this, um, a moment like this, right? And that's where history um, can tell us um, where a lot about where we are and a lot about, you know, how it is that people react to um, um, pandemics, also how it is that um, pandemics, when they arise, give rise to or have the potential to give rise to autocratic regimes. I mean, all of that is part of the, the history as opposed to, um, I think, a kind of simplistic way that often gets portrayed in the, and not to blame the media for everything, but, you know, often gets portrayed in the media, which is that, oh my gosh, it's 2020 and, oh my gosh, we had a pandemic back in 1918. Aren't they the same? Um, that's, um, I think, what, what the deeper question, argument or question or way, uh, mode of looking at it should be. Um, we have pandemics that have occurred in the past. We are experiencing one now. And what are the um, systems, the people, the actions of all the work that's been done on pandemics that can inform us about this moment um, and inform us about the both the radical possibilities of the moment, but also the dangers of the moment? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, Mark Twain has got this, this great, great line about the history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I, I think, uh, you know, there are rhymes going on which are dis disturbing in this year, of which the pandemic plays a part. You know, we're in an unstable world politically with rogue states and states jostling for power and pandemics. And if I were looking for rhymes, I'd be, you know, the build-up to 1914 or the or the dangers of the build-up post-pandemic in the 1920s to the fascism in the 1930s, when really disastrous turns of events happened through unwise leadership and accidents and stuff like that. So um, um, those are the kind of things that I, uh, you, look at, um, you look at today. Uh, you look at the muscular nationalism, which is now being employed by the Chinese, and, you know, they feel... I mean, somebody in Beijing told me, oh, the Chinese leadership think that the U.S. is losing and that that what might have taken a decade or two of economic growth and slow military expansion has suddenly come on them with the possibility that they're going to they're going to win in this, you know, um, and hence this justifies what's happening. in. Uh, obviously, they took those little islands in the South China Sea five years ago, but, you know, the, their actions in Hong Kong, their actions in Tibet and Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia, even the clash with India in the border with Ladakh, they're, they fit, they're, they're, they're testing the water. And those are very dangerous times, as in the 1910s and the 1920s and 30s, if, if the leadership on the other side is not really calm and a leadership that understands history um, I, I mean, I think that um, understandably, because it's our history, those of us in the West who are looking for parallels to the current pandemic look back to pandemics that hit us in the West in the past. So the uh, the Spanish flu is the obvious one. But, you know, I've read lots of articles about um, uh, 
the Black Death. I plead guilty to having written about the Thucydidean <laughs> plague. Uh, none, none of these are, are, are really of any relevance. The 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 pandemic, or at least the the experience of of disease that we should have been alert to, was the experience that. Um, countries in uh, in 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 ar- around china went through with sars um and th- one of the reasons why taiwan why south korea why japan have done relatively so much better than us is that they went through that experience they absorbed the lessons they were alert to the fact that um <clears throat> these kind of diseases, these kind of pandemics were very liable to come out of China and that uh, it was highly probable that um, the Chinese authorities would try and cover them up and um, lie about them and that therefore there was a heightened risk that they would spread. And so the response of South Korea and Taiwan in particular are, are, are paradigms that we should, I think, have been alert to. And of course, it's incredibly easy with the benefit of hindsight to say that. But I think that that, that we remain kind of solipsistic. We remain unaware of, of, of just how much we have to learn from other areas of the world and the degree to which our own historical experiences no longer provide the default paradigms by which the entire understanding of global affairs is to be understood. I would, as a historian, though, be tempted to turn your question on its head as well. I mean, I'm mostly this hasn't been me thinking about what does history tell us about the past so much as what does the present, uh, what does, you know, history tell us about the present so much as what does the present moment tell us about the past. And so I think as historians, um, you know, understanding what it's like to live through a pandemic, understanding what it's like to um, be confined to the only the area that you can walk in or having children underfoot whilst you're trying to work or trying to, <laughs> um, you know, or being aware of mortality. These are things that haven't been part of our uh, everyday experience. And I think, so to turn it around, I think that in many ways what's happening to us in our own very uh, small world, which have become much smaller in some ways, um, we we have an insight into the past. And so that's the comparison I'm more interested in making. What can we learn about then as opposed to now? And Susie, I, I wonder if that doesn't offer perhaps a, a, a glimmer of hope of your, your, your note of despair about the closure of the theatres, because both Sophocles and Shakespeare, of course, lived through experiences of plague. <laughs> so <laughs> perhaps uh, great tragic masterpieces will emerge from Let's this. Let's hope so. I hope you're right. <laughs> yes, yes. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And the culture wars that are going on at the moment are not and not only about Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter have sparked off other really important and fruitful areas of inquiry. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
and BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We should talk some more about Black Lives Matter, obviously. Um, you mentioned earlier the idea of uh, us reappraising colonialism and its legacy. Why do you think that seems to have come to such a head during this particular year, I suppose? Well, I, I think because we have all these instances beginning in January where the inequities wrought by racial capitalistic systems by colonial systems have come to a head um, uh, uh, around the world. And so I think that um, that's um, a a root of why it seems as though it's coming to a head. But I would say that I think that many, many um, uh, people um, in the West um, who are of a certain class and of a certain background, it seems as though this is like uh, a monumental moment of racial reckoning. But I would point out that for most people who are um, somehow um, in sub- subaltern communities, to, for lack of a better world, or people who are colonized or people who have been um, the object of colonial enterprise. This is not, this year is um, a disaster, yes, but it's not as if this is coming out of nowhere. Um, and most of those peoples um, have had some sort of, of, of um idea that the systems everyone in the West, white West, uh, for lack of a better term, thinks are stable are not stable. Um, And so I think that um, listening to one lesson we can get out of this moment, if there's there's a bunch of lessons and we're all trying to learn from the lessons, is that the people who are, um, you know, saying and giving witness to the world as it actually is are the ones who should be paid attention to. So for most of those those people, um, that is not a surprise. I mean, in, in the in the United States, I don't think it's a surprise, although it's still heartbreaking, that, you know, the people who are dying the most of COVID-19 are people in African-American and Latin, Latino communities and poor communities across the United States. I mean, that's, that's, um, that's a historical reality. Um, and so I think that... Um, the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of informing this moment is um, asking us to argue that these things are not sudden. They don't suddenly just appear, even though that might be the moment that, um, you know, certain um, uh, talking heads believe that it suddenly suddenly come about. Oh, my goodness. How could this how could a, this uh, this accident of police brutality suddenly happen? Um, most people in those communities, it's, it's a steady building. It's a wave. And part of the reason why I do history is because um, if you study 
study history, it's not as if history is a prophecy and tells you what's going to happen, but it often does tell you and can indicate um, where things are heading. And so um, back in, you know, 2016, even there, I say 2000, when there were certain groups of people around the world, not just in the United States, who were, you know, colonized subjects who were pointing to certain patterns, um, when there were certain groups of indigenous peoples around the world who were pointing to climate change and what was happening to the land um, many years ago, um, nobody or people in the Western thought we're not listening. And so I think one of the one of the moments we can take of this is to step back and say um, how, yes, we are in, and I'm not trying to discount the moment or discount the lives that have been lost due to COVID or discount the massive destruction that has occurred um, for around the world for people due to the moment we're in. But it's all, it's not as if this came out of nowhere, right? It's not as if, um, if you're looking at the history of col- colonialism empire, uh, the way race is created around the world, um, it's not as if this is this is unthinkable and unimaginable. Um, it is something that is the consequence, if you look at history, of those those systems being put into place. Um, so I would say that's that's one of the things that I think something like a Black Lives Matter movement is is doing is that it's pointing out that this is not something that's new. It's not something that's localized. Um, it's causing. Um, kind of the the western world to come to a reckoning of of where what it has wrought you know that in in um 2020 yeah it's very much a case of us realizing recognizing the relationship between the past and the present that present injustices stem from historic pasts and the stories that we te- continue to tell about them the stories that we omit the stories that we commemorate um but uh, I think you're, it's a very good point uh, to say, Kerry, that this is it's not like it's suddenly come out of nowhere. It's not like suddenly injustice has just been happening this year and we've noticed. Well, we have noticed. So the question actually about this is why are people listening this year? And so I don't know if, you know, there's a combination of factors. Maybe it's because we'd slowed down a bit because of the pandemic. Everyone was listening a little bit more in terms of looking out to anything that was going on in the world. Um, I fear, however, that it is chiefly because of footage, because there was footage. Um, Because, you know, and you think about the number of times in the past since we've had cameras where a photograph has become a sort of defining moment um, and uh, all our, you think about the Vietnam War and that child running down from the napalm attack, you know, there are these, uh, uh, these, uh, I hate the word, but the iconic photos that then uh, dictate response or move people to response. And I think it was the it's the footage that has um in the end uh moved people to feel that this you know that there cannot be any more of these injustices and that has started to make people focus on um how we've got to this point you know what is what is entrenched in the system as a result of history um but it's 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 just about that people paying attention to it this year, really. I, th- I think also it, what it shows is that what happens in America, um, that the display of uh, America's pathologies and culture wars remains the topic of obsessional interest to people in other countries, and perhaps particularly to um, English-speaking countries. Um that all all kinds of people have suffered terrible things this year. Um, in, in a sense, the dog that hasn't barked in the night so far in this conversation is 
the suffering of the Uyghurs, a, a million people being rounded up into effectively concentration camps, uh, women being sterilized, uh, an entire culture being deliberately wiped out. And yet that has had no cut through at all. And I, I think that's in part picking up what Susie said, that we lack the images. Um, you know, the, the, There is no footage. Um, they speak a, a language that most of us don't speak. Uh, but, but above all, it, it, it's, it's not American. And the ability of America to project its dramas remains kind of unrivaled. I do think that, that, that what is different this time around, say from the civil rights movement, um, I, I think that the civil rights movement had a, a kind of greater cut through beyond the English-speaking lands. I, I, I think that the ideals that were articulated in, um, in the civil rights movement really cut through and, and, and were kind of admired and, and were taken up. I think that outside the English-speaking world, as far as I can tell, attitudes towards Black Lives Matter and more generally the culture wars in America are, are, are kind of more ambivalent. There's, the, the, there's a sense of confusion. And one of the things that kind of brought this home to me was um, the kind of, the, the, the cultural, mutual cultural misapprehension that has marked the way that um, American newspapers have covered the, um, the killing of the man who beheaded the French teacher um, outside Paris, where the emphasis has been all about um, policemen killing, killing someone shooting them down. Whereas for the French, of course, they're, they're giving it a very different perspective. Now, in a sense, France, um, in a way, is kind of closer to, to, to Britain than, than America is. Um, its experience of colonialism, its relationship to the legacy of colonialism is, is, is much closer. But in a sense, we, 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 the impact that um, the beheading of that teacher and the shooting of the man who did him and the, um, the, the incredible kind of surge of, of, of agonising that's going on in France and the way in which it's precipitating a kind of a, a massive standoff between Macron and Erdogan and Imran Khan. I mean, this is a, this is a massive, massive story, but it, ha- it, it, it simply lacks the news coverage and it simply lacks the cut through here that America, that, that, that American stories do. And I think that that suggests that culturally, we in Britain, uh, you know, we, we, we are part of the American cultural world. France to us seems more foreign, even though in so many ways it isn't. In so many ways, France is much closer to our experience than America is. If I could just um, make a connection to, we've been talking about Black Lives Matter and about, um, you know, whether it's the English-speaking world or a global world. And all I wanted to really widen it out to is the idea that Black Lives Matter had an instant impact in the UK. And I think I agree with Susanna about you know, technology made a big difference because this has been going on forever, but here's the concrete evidence. But a younger generation has grown up um, well aware through the media and the internet and social media and film of uh, what modern history has constituted. They can look it all up. And um, and the relevance of Black Lives Matter uh, to the, for instance, in the, in the British world was not only... a important as it is about black lives mattering, it was 
what it told us about our own historical experience having ruled an empire uh, across the whole world for so long and and an experience that we haven't, as a culture, really faced up to. The British Empire is the most important, I would say, the most important single event, can I put it that way, of the fact in our British history of the last three or four hundred years. And the culture wars that are going on at the moment are not are not only about Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter have sparked off other really important and fruitful areas of inquiry. And, you know, Susanna was talking about the letters from the government to these cultural organisations like English Heritage and National Trust and many other cultural organisations who are being effectively told, because they're publicly funded bodies, to, uh, to toe the line. And the incredible line for all historians was when, when the Prime Minister said, we can't pretend to have a different history, which is such an incredible remark. Uh, to any historian, of course, but the whole point is that, you know, history is something that constantly has to be rewritten and re-understood by every generation, by, by smaller gaps in time now, you know. And what is happening is the Black Lives Matter movement is one of the factors which has made a lot of young people here, a lot of older people here, a lot of people around the world, look again at the impact of the whole colonial era and its racism and the, the the structural racism that encompassed all colonialism and all imperialism and the effect it's had on people and uh, and that's why it's it's kind of unleashed a um, a wider critique of how are we going to understand our history how are we going to teach our history now in 2020 um, uh, now that we actually understand a bit more about uh, slavery and its and its roles in in how deeply ingrained it is in British culture too. The British pushed it to one side. In America, it's always been a massive fact because you know, the Afro Americans are there, descended from the people who were taken by force to the Americas. But in Britain, it happened over there, somewhere out there, and and that's why I think this is part of a bigger revolt. And history has never been so politicised, it seems to me. Uh, I remember how politicised it was under Margaret Thatcher when, you know, Thatcher wrote the preface to a pamphlet about the teaching of history by Lord Hugh Thomas, um, explicitly renouncing the E.P. Thompson, Christopher Hill, so-called Marxist school that I grew up on as a student. It's now right back in. Uh, We don't accept that version of our history. Uh, We don't, and, and, and that's, that's where that debate takes us, I think. But, but Michael, I mean, isn't this basically an, an Anglo-American story? Uh, I mean, it's 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 about the relation. It's it's about what happened in the Atlantic world in the seventeenth, in the eighteenth, through the nineteenth centuries, and into the twentieth. I'm not convinced. When, I mean, when I when I look at France, even when I look at Belgium, I mean, you know, Belgium has a, a colonial legacy to reckon with. I don't see this cutting through. I don't see it cutting through in 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 Spain. But you, I mean, you know, is this cutting through in China? Is this cutting through in India? In the in the Islamic world, I don't see it. I think this is a very specific. I I, I mean, I would I, I would I would argue that that yes, it has. And if for some reason you're not seeing it, it's because of the bias 
of whatever media, and it should be looking at the news within those countries and those areas of subaltern pe- people and how it is that they are reacting to this moment. You mentioned the Uyghurs, and um, interestingly enough, you know, Black Lives Matter was one of the groups in the United States as well as in Australia that was uh, pointing out the atrocities being committed against Uyghurs in um, in China. Why was not that? Why wasn't that covered in the mainstream white press in the either the United States or Australia? It's main. It's need to be seen. But if you're part of those organizations, that has been at the forefront of that, um, the Black Lives Matter argument since, um, as that was happening. And so I think that we have to move beyond looking at, um, you know, I don't see it in my mainstream television when I turn it on, so therefore it must not exist, so why am I learning about it? I think that um, we are at this crisis moment where um, movements are occurring. Black Lives Matter is global. Um, Black Lives Matter in of, in various ways is being um, um embraced and then nurtured um, in other groups around the world who are uh, the objects of colonial projects. Um, But I don't know if the colonial projects themselves are ready to see the depths of that. And so is that being reported on the same way as um, let's look at the United States and see a George Floyd protest as just local. Um, Black Lives Matter has never been a local organization. If you go back and look at the the original sort of um, um, uh, statements about themselves that were made, um, it's not, it's, it's, it's seen police brutality, racism as this global project. Um, To argue that somehow it's just kind of this, what's happening in the Atlantic between the Anglo-American world, I mean, it's it's cutting out what's happening in terms of um, um, why is it that people in Nigeria who are fighting against SARS are proclaiming Black Lives Matter as they're doing that that movement um, as we speak. Um, You know, so I I think that one of the things that I think history and the study of history requires us to do is really take a critical eye to what sources and what archives are. And we can do that in real time as historians when we're looking at our moment. Um, I never take that what I see and what I know or what I believe to be true is actually true. Um, because I, as a historian, I know that there were many people back in 1920 who were saying what I see and what I believe is true is true. And we know how that turned out. And so part of what history allows us to do is be, think more critically about what it is that we're seeing, right? Saying that, you know, what, I, what I'm seeing from the States or what I'm seeing from London or what I'm seeing from uh, Kinshasa that's what I'm seeing, but it's it's not. It's just one part of this this truth, the reality that is existing in this moment. Um, and so I think that's one of the one of the the um, the one of the moments that this this moment of of global. I keep saying moment. I apologize, but this moment of kind of global um, crisis is asking us, or is to, or might be asking us to do, which is that. You know, it isn't about I I I don't know what's going on in China or the Uyghurs. I just found about it out about it. It can't. It probably wasn't happening until I found out about it. Right. Um, we are in a moment where um, the world and people who are protesting and challenging empire and challenging racism and challenging um, the uh, Western political order, they're having these conversations. They 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 they're the ones who are who are leading this. Right. And so to have this idea that somehow because I don't know about it, because the mainstream media hasn't covered them, that they don't exist. Um, And as a historian, we know that that happens all the time, right? Um, That, you know, which is why it makes history fascinating. You know, you go to a moment in history and somebody is claiming, um, you know, in 1899 that um, the uh, King Leopold's atrocities that happened in the Belgian Congo were not existing, right? Well, we know there are, most people didn't believe that it was existing, right? But we know that it was. So what does that moment teach us about how we should evaluate our own moment? Maybe the things that we believe 
uh, just like what, you know, many Belgians believe to be true about Congo in 1899, perhaps whatever it is that we think of as being true in 2020 is not true um, and is not accurate. And there are, if we are still living in the shadow of empire, it probably means that somewhere that empire is doing things that empires have done in the past. <laughs> you see, I, I, I think that um, one, of the, one of the sources of privilege for um, English speakers has has and, and perhaps particularly initially for for Britain and and, and more recently for America, is uh, to assume that that their agonies, their concerns are are, are of universal import. Um, why is the name of George Floyd spoken on the streets of London, but not say the name of of a Uyghur or a Yazidi or uh, someone on the margins of Nigeria? It's it, it's because of the the huge cultural hegemony that that, that, that America wields. Now, I, I think that um, 2020 will come to be seen as an age where the conceit of, of people in the West, and, and perhaps particularly in America, that, that their values, their concerns, their issues are universal, will, will, will come to be seen exactly as that, as a conceit. And I think that, that that there are other straws in the wind that have happened this year that suggests that all kinds of, of values, all kinds of frameworks that, that, that we in the West have always taken for granted and have, have rather assumed are, are not culturally distinctive, but are, are just part of, 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 of the mental furniture that everyone has, that, that that assumption has come under stress. So another example, I think, would be the ideal of secularism. I think we we saw two very very striking examples this summer. I mean, kind of amazingly close to each other. One when um, the Prime Minister of India went to the city of Ayodhya and laid the foundation stone of um, a, a temple to Lord Rama on what had been um, a Mughal mosque, and in Istanbul when President Erdogan converted uh, what had been the museum of Hagia Sophia into the mosque of Hagia Sophia, and in both cases. Uh, Modi and Erdogan were essentially saying that the the model of secularism that I think people in the West tend to take for granted and assume, you know, is just the water that we swim in. That actually, no, this is this is something culturally distinctive that 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 has been given to us that, that you know has been come from the West and we are rejecting it. And again, to go back to France and what's happening at the moment, I think that's part of the, the snarl again because for the French. In particular, the commitment to laicite, to, to, to a secular ideal, is something that is fundamental to their value system. And, and, and the current crisis kind of brings home the degree to which that is compatible with what historically has been a very different way of understanding the world, which, is, which has been the perspective of Islam. So I, 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 just to reiterate what I said right at the, the top of this conversation, I, I do think that um, we are kind of moving into a, a multipolar world and a culturally multipolar world. And I think that actually the, um, the, the, the kind of the, the claims of universalism seem to me to be palpably in retreat. And I think that the kind of the commonality of concerns, of values, of assumptions that, 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 that people in the West have been able to rely on for so long, I think that that is starting to weather myself. May I pick up on one point there, which is, I, I think I'm, there were some really wonderful points there, and I'm so glad you raised the issue of, of 
um, these transformations of these spaces and you know um, the actions of, of Modi and Erdogan. Um, but I I just take issue with the idea that um, that se- the that holding secularism as uh, an ideal is a Western one. In the case of India, at least, I would say that it was fundamentally written into the constitution of the in- of independent India, um, and so. Uh, f- and the, there's no incompatibility for there hasn't been incompatibility for Indians in being both religious and believing in secularism at a state level. What we're seeing now is changing that. It's changing what the definition of what it means to be Indian, um, and it is obviously drawing on this intensely um, religious form of nationalism. So I, I just I'm not sure that it's an imposition of the West so much as something that was. Uh, I mean. You could argue, you could argue that many of those writing the Constitution of India in 1947 had been educated in the West, but I do feel that there there was something um, uh, of uh, native to it as well as being something imposed. But I, I, th- I think that the idea that there is a, a, something called the secular and that there are things called religions that exist that are removed the secular is is a, basically a kind of Protestant idea that the British took and which which, which India absorbed and and. The Indian constitution, the secular constitution, is a legacy of the Raj, and I think that that is absolutely what uh, what Modi is reacting against, uh, in exactly the same way that that Erdogan is reacting against the legacy of Ataturk, who again was very consciously looking to a kind of European model to how to structure it. So I think that that um, because of because of the West's cultural preponderance we have been able to assume that our way of seeing the world is analogous to the way that the world is. I think that as our cultural supremacy retreats, the ability to see the world in that way retreats as well, is is, is my gut feeling, looking at at the way the world has evolved this year and over the past few decades. It's interesting, apropos of secularization i would agree uh, obviously the framers of the indian constitution were all british educated lawyers so uh, <laughs> but there was a much there was a much older tradition of um uh you know a multicultural multi-religious order in in early india but i would draw a parallel with china uh, and uh, which where of course um uh, the the idea of the secular, however you would translate that into Chinese, runs very very deep in um, uh, in Chinese history. You know, Confucius d- establishes a moral, an idea for a moral order, not a religious order. He never talks about an afterlife. You can find you you can you can uh, uh, do your rituals as if the gods exist, but the essence of a political order is that it should be a moral order governed by virtue and and benevolence. And um, and uh, so China is a different kettle of fish, and it draws attention to the, that fundamental difference, which actually was picked out by the great sinologist Simon Lays, who says China's the other pole of the human mind. He said the other great civilizations, even India and Islam, they're too close to the the monotheistic West for us to truly see difference. It's only when you study China do you really see what are the universal values of humankind and what are Western idiosyncrasies. And actually, when you look at Chinese history, that's that's a very interesting point of view. It's they 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 are not governed by a 
monotheistic conception of the universe in the way that uh, uh, Islam and Christianity were. Uh, and, and, and indeed, that slightly, I think, distinguishes the Eastern world from, from the Western, to be honest. So I think, uh, and, and indeed, I don't know what the word is in Chinese, but when you read the accounts of the, the persecution, of, for instance, of the Buddhists in the ninth century, they definitely have a word which means that you are laicized. You know, we're going to stop the Buddhist preaching and you go back to the secular life. So they understood that in China. Uh, and and it's still one of the most noticeable things today, even though there are a lot of religious people in China, there's supposed to be 80 million Christians and so on. But fundamentally, um, theirs is a secular civilization in which a lot of people go to the temple or, the, or whatever else uh, for auspiciousness. So I'm quite intrigued by that difference. Indeed, the great um, um, French scholar of uh, Sanskrit and, and India, um, Alain Danielu, who spent his life living with sadhus, uh, whose brother was a cardinal, said that he thought monotheism was a moral error. <laughs> but that, that's the fascination, isn't it? That we now, we live in a, in, in a century where that legacy of, of, of civilizational distinctiveness is coming to have a kind of global preponderance that is equivalent to that of the West. And no one in the West has been used to that for at least 200 years. And it's you know it's a bit, it's a bit of a bit of a shocker and um and 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 the 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 relative performance of 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 China and and the the countries around China relative to the West has really brought that home I think and the pandemic will underline it yes yes absolutely we've talked a lot about history and about politics do you think there are any dangers of history becoming too politicized history is always political I would say. Uh, because I think that, um, as we can tell sort of, um, sort of the threads of the conversation today, I think that there are people who kind of um, see history in a certain way and that's going to be their prerogative and it's like counting out the people that existed and have existed for um, years out of the conversation. And then there are people who look and say, I want to get a fuller picture of this moment in time or this uh, this this period in time. Um, and I'm going to look at all the primary sources that are available to me to get as many of the, the perspectives on that moment. So I think history is always political. I think that anytime you start to argue that somehow um, having um, empires account for themselves is more political than having them not count for themselves, that's a danger because you're, um, you know, both of those are political acts. Um, um, both the say arguing that, for instance, you know, um, history has to take into account colonial and racial legacies, and arguing that it doesn't. Um, the the view that is saying it doesn't is just as political, has just as much of an agenda, has just as much as a purpose as the one who say that they that it is. Um, so history is 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 political. Um, you can't argue with the primary sources and the research and um, um, what it is you're looking at. You can argue. Uh, you can kind of get in and kind of see what is an archive and that debate that is happening, um, particularly amongst um, amongst scholars that is welcomed. But you know you can't argue with um, that somehow uh, there's political history, and then there's non-politicized history. When I I work on the Reformation, I remember when I was a PhD student, somebody saying to me that they were, I don't know what they were writing about, but they were, they talked about how they, uh, as an atheist, could have an unbiased opinion on the struggle between the Protestants <laughs> and the Catholics, said completely without irony. Um, and I think what we're, exactly what Kerry says, that actually these days, hopefully, though I don't think it's clear that this is happening with everybody, but hopefully there's a 
there maybe is a sense of beginning to recognize what historians have always known, which is that we bring our own subjectivities to determine the nature of the past that we tell, and that we need to be uh, honest about that lens that we put in front of our vision. And that if we, you know, that somebody saying we, uh, you know, there's all this conversation about erasing the past or whatever, uh, that history shouldn't be rewritten, it should never change, you know, is is baloney because we always write rewrite history because we are always speaking from our present position. And the 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 key is to work out to identify our present position and therefore try and account you know uh, account for it um, or discount for it, I suppose, as much as possible in the history that we then tell, knowing that we will never fully do that, um, it, that we are always going to be seeing things from our current perspective. But we are trying as far as possible, and I think this conversation has made it clear, not only from our historic perspective, but from our geographic perspective, to compensate for the biases that we naturally have. Um, I, I think that um, his, history will always be political because of the same reason that politics will always be rooted in history, that there, that there, there are never any definitive answers. Uh, people will always disagree about it. Um, I mean, just in Britain, all the convulsive issues that we face are rooted in what your perspective is on history. Um, so Brexit essentially is an argument about history. Um, the, the future of the United Kingdom, whether it should cohere, whether Scotland will will will, will vote, vote to leave. I mean, that that's essentially is a debate about history. Um, and if you broaden that camera out, almost everywhere where there are political tensions, political disagreements, which is essentially everywhere in the world, those arguments tend to be arguments about history. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, which all goes to show how why history matters <laughs> it seems to me you know um it clearly it gives value and meaning to our lives and and as kerry says it may not be a prophecy but it sure as hell gives you some sense of where you might be heading that was michael wood in conversation with kerry greenwich tom holland and Susanna litscombe you can read a version of this conversation in the december issue of bbc history magazine that's on sale now and also includes features on Richard III, the Roman army, the Habsburgs and the best history books of 2020. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Robert Harris about his new World War II novel, V2. Listener.